Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. How's it going, everybody? This episode, let me return to my love of lipids. Dr. Nadir Ali is an amazing guy. He's an interventional cardiologist with 25 years of experience. He's the chairman of the Department of Cardiology at the Clear Lake Regional Medical Center in Texas. And he has given a number of amazing presentations online. You can go to YouTube and see his presentations. One of the ones which was particularly intriguing to me was his one about why we should not be worried about high LDL cholesterol on ketogenic and carnivore diets, which is from low-carb Denver, I believe, in the past. He has previously worked as an assistant professor of medicine for eight years at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, where he received his medical training. He champions many aspects of science and the practice of a low-carb lifestyle in the local Clear Lake community since 2013. He is an originator. He has a monthly nutritional seminar in the CRC Auditorium of the Clear Lake Hospital that receives more than 100 visitors every month from the local community. If you are near Houston, you should go check that out. His focus is on managing heart disease, obesity, metabolic syndrome, and diabetes, and he's also a super amazing guy and a really cool dude to hang out with. I rode a scooter over to a spot where we recorded this podcast, and man, this is full of gems. You guys are going to learn so much, so prepare yourselves We are going to talk all about LDL and statins and all kinds of cool stuff. And I think at the end of it, you will probably still have an improved perspective on lipids and what this all means in ketogenic and carnivore settings. The Dave Feldman episode is another episode which will be complimentary to this. Listen to that one if you have more questions. And now a word from my sponsors and we will jump into the podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the incredible Ancestral Supplements. They offer New Zealand-sourced bone marrow and nose-to-tail organ meats like liver, heart, kidney, pancreas, brain, and more in the simple, convenient gelatin capsules, which make it easier to swallow if you don't like the taste of those things. They are desiccated, which means they are low-temperature dehydrated, which means many of the nutrients are extremely well-preserved. I suspect that desiccated meats, desiccated organs, desiccated parts of the animal like brain are probably even more nutritious, nutrient-rich, than cooked forms of these. Want to get some solid evidence for that, but this is a really good way to take your supplements. Six of the liver capsules is essentially equivalent to an ounce of liver, which is a really good start. I've been digging on their brain recently. Brain has neurotrophic factors that support the survival of existing neurons and encourages the growth of new neurons, as well as sphingomyelin, which we know is a component of neurons in the brain and the myelin sheath. I think it is just so cool to be able to eat more of the animal. I am continuing to eat more of the animal. I'm going to eat some real brain and some of these desiccated brain supplements this week. I will keep you guys posted. So visit ancestralsupplements.com to see what they can do for you. My affiliate code is SALADINOMD. I believe it will get you 10% off. Ancestral supplements are putting back in what the modern world has left out. I believe that. I think nose to tail is the way to go, you guys. You know this. Also check out Juve www.juvjovv.com front slash Paul. I'm going to be talking more about this in the future. I'm getting a whole huge setup at my house. I'm going to be using it all the time. I really like light. I like circadian rhythms. Okay, 
Check out my newsletter too, except I renamed it. Somebody told me a newsletter was too boring, so now it's called the Fundamental Health Insider. You can go to my website and see that, or you can go to fundamentalhealthinsider.com and sign up. About every week, I am sending out all kinds of updates, what's going on with me. I'll talk about an article. If you want to be an insider, if you want the scoop on what is going on behind the scenes, sign up for that. You will not be disappointed. If you are disappointed, you can send me an email directly and tell me why it stinks and how to make it better. All right? Cool. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you all. It's been an amazing week here at KetoCon where I recorded this with Nadir Ali. He's amazing. I think you'll enjoy it. Let me know how I'm doing. On to the podcast. All right. Here we are. Welcome to the show, my friend. It's good to be here with you. Paul, it's awesome. We have had a good time connecting and I'm amazed at what you're doing. Thank you. Well, you know, it's funny because this always happens with podcasts where we get talking about stuff before the podcast and just like all my other podcasts, I was like, let's just hit record. Let's just go. People can hear what we're talking about and they can hear our conversations, but we've already had lots of great conversations thus far. So I went to your talk yesterday and I want to say happy anniversary because it was so cool at the beginning of your talk. You did like a Facebook live or, an ins- or just a live, like a FaceTime with your wife and the whole audience <laughs> wished her happy anniversary. <laughs> what did she say about that? Oh, she was shocked. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't think you could have seen her face, but she was like basically dumbfounded. I thought that was pretty awesome. I thought it was pretty cool. So I'm excited to have you on the show today and a number of people have requested that you come on. I first got familiar with your work when I saw one of your presentations about LDL. So let's talk about cholesterol, let's jump in, and let's talk a little bit about this because you're a cardiologist, you're based in Houston, and I think it's so interesting to have you in the space because you are on the front lines of mainstream medicine, putting in stents, doing interventional work for cardiology, and your perspective is different than every other cardiologist on the planet for the most part. So I couldn't agree with you more about that, so uh, I just wanna give a little background So uh, I have been an interventional cardiologist now for 29 years. So for 29 years, I have seen patients, have put stents in them, I do coronary angiograms. So I'm on a constant basis exposed to people's blood vessels of the heart. And I think by design, I am either you could call a cynic if you want to be bad or a skeptic if you want to be good. I was never truly convinced that cholesterol had a major impact on coronary disease. Because I would see people coming in with MIs who had LDL cholesterol in the 70s, sometimes in the 50s. And I would see elderly women in their 90s with an LDL cholesterol over 200 with beautiful coronary arteries, and I would say, hey, I would trade your coronary arteries to mine, even though I'm several decades younger than you. So this skepticism always held in my mind. And then I also used to work with surgeons who had been practicing surgery for 50 years. And they would say, we go in and we actually open up these patients' hearts and we look at these blood vessels. And I, for one, am not convinced that there is any direct correlation between the degree of plaque buildup and cholesterol levels that we see in a blood test. 
So that skepticism kept with me. And then when I became a little bit more capable of analyzing clinical literature, I was so underwhelmed by the degree of benefit that cholesterol-reducing medicines do. And then I was a little bit skeptical about the degree of pharmaceutical influence in conducting these studies. So um, that skepticism grew and grew. And uh, I've been through a lot in my personal life myself. And I am, in some ways, you could say, a recovering vegan because I've tried vegan lifestyle for some time. And that made me look a little bit more into it. And I'll get into why I got into the low-carb community in a little bit if you want, but uh, what do you think? No, I'd love to hear it. I think people will be so interested in that story. People will know that I was a PA in cardiology for four years, and so I saw many similar things. And so it's great to connect with you who have been in it for decades longer than I was, and it's so interesting to hear. So I would love to hear the story of how you got interested in the low-carb community, especially from the world of veganism. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, I was never really concerned about consuming fat. Um, I was always con concerned about consuming refined sugar. But I never really translated into a low-carb situation because I would say complex carbohydrates are reasonable, a low-carb diet is reasonable, even a raw vegan diet may be reasonable. Because as a physician, you don't really analyze the human gut, the way it is designed. Um, you don't understand that we have an acid-based stomach. You don't understand that, hey, our fermentation capacity is not that great. But from a personal standpoint, you know, you see me here, uh, the audience is not able to see me. I'm about 145 pounds. And you'd be shocked to know that I was about 185 pounds at one point. And this point was right around 2012, and I've been a cyclist now for about 13 years. And in those 13 years, I have done 10,000 miles of cycling every year. And I belong to a racing team, I'm the racing team's physician, even though I don't race. But I like to keep up with my team when I'm cycling. And I just couldn't. I just couldn't, and I'm a very determined guy. I starved myself to death, but I could not lose weight. I could come down to about 165, 170, but it would rapidly go back up. So that's when, about the time, in 2012, 13 timeframe, when Chris Froome was riding for uh, Tour de France to the Sky Team, and this guy was a low carver. And I said, why should I not look into it? And I remember listening to some odd podcast about low carb, and I said, as a physician, I have not really paid attention to the way in which we metabolize nutrients. I have not paid attention to insulin resistance. I have not paid attention to how little carbohydrate that we can store. I have not paid attention to how you can mobilize and use fat for fuel. And that's when I went into a low-carb situation. And you'd be shocked to know that in three to six months, without trying, I, was, I could regulate my weight to less than 140 kilograms. I, mean, I think that was too much. I'm between 145 and 150. And 140 I think, pounds. 
I'm sorry, yeah, 140 pounds. And I, I, I said that wrong. So 140 pounds. Uh, and it was, an, it was an amazing journey. And I said, look, for 25 years or 23 years at that time, I have taken care of patients in the cat lab. I was so dejected with lifestyle changes in my patients, with medications in my patients. And I happened to be a very good interventional cardiologist. I could fix them with stents in the cath lab. I said, that's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to see patients in the clinic. And you will understand that being a cardiology PA. I would let my colleagues do that. And I would say, I will fix you in the cath lab because I'm so good at it. And I'm not going to give you any medicines. I don't believe in them. I think antihypertensives don't really work. In my experience, that lipid-lowering drugs cause all kinds of side effects. I don't want to prescribe these to you. I don't want to deal with it. I just want to fix you in the cat lab. But then when I had this personal transformation, I said, if it can happen to me, why can I not apply it to my patients? And that was a transformation that made me go back into my office. Now, I love seeing patients. And I see over 100 patients per week in my office. And I'm like a preacher. I'm saying, hey, this is what's happening to you. I'm taking a monthly seminar, a free seminar for my patients. Come learn from me. So that's where my transformation came about. I used to be really into the Tour de France too, the generation before Chris Froome. So I'm not familiar with that. I had a phase before I went to PA school where I wore Lycra a lot. I was in Boulder, Colorado. I was unemployed and I was trying to get into cycling too, but I was a high carb cyclist at that time. So that's really interesting to hear that Chris Froome was low carb and that was what got you interested in it. And I will add that I think it's awesome that you're seeing patients because having been able to spend a little bit of time with you in person, your patients are extremely blessed to get to see you when they're awake and they can interact with you because you're an amazing individual. You know, you, your patients need to see you when they are not just on Valium and having you in their wrist or their crotch feeding a stent into their, into their arteries. I'm sure they very much appreciate your personality and your warmth. So, and it sounds like you are getting a lot out of that as well. Oh, it's, it's definitely been a great journey because um, for the last six years, every month, I don't advertise my uh, meetup group, but a hundred patients show up. A hundred people show up every month. And since they show up, I got to be giving them the information and it makes me a better physician because I'm constantly reviewing this information. How can I give the right information to my patients for them to improve their health? So it makes me accountable. And the kind of energy that I see when my patients show up and how much they gravitate towards giving me feedback saying that, hey, I'm doing something good for them has been an amazing journey. So what do you tell them when these patients come to these seminars that you're doing? What do you, how do you tell them how to eat? And again, this is amazing because it's coming from a conventionally trained cardiologist who is, uh, and I'll say this with kind of tongue in cheek, I'm not meaning to be pejorative, a stent jockey, right? Mm -hmm. So you're a stent master. You're just throwing in those stents left and right. You're 
you know, metal jacketing people and now you're coming back to the clinic. So you've got, you know, decades of experience with this. How do you tell them how to eat? I don't think it's probably what most other cardiologists are telling them. So, yes, uh, I can generalize a bit. Uh, every patient needs to be individualized to a certain degree. But as a generalization, I would say that I focus on three things. One would be that you need to be on a predominantly low-carb, animal-based diet. So that's one of the messages that I give. The second message that I give is that there is no diet that humans can do if they are not routinely practicing intermittent fasting. And when you saw in my presentation yesterday, my views on short-term versus a little bit of a longer-term fast have been evolving. The third thing, of course, that I promote is movement. I want them to prevent sedentation. So we can take nutrition first. And in my practice, since many of my patients, I have patients in their 90s who have lost 50 pounds, who were in a wheelchair, who were using crutches. They have given up the wheelchair. They have given up the crutches. I have removed, well, I shouldn't say I have removed them with their informed consent and with what they made in terms of personal decisions, they have come off of statins. They have come off of diabetic medications because they don't need them. And I used examples of 90-year-olds, but I have plenty of 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds who have done the same thing. And in this course of time, I have seen that as their lipid profile changes, because that's what I'm going to focus on right now, is that I routinely see that their triglycerides, which is fat and blood goes down, it's important to focus a little bit on that because reduction in triglycerides is a surrogate marker of improvement in the health of the fat cells. Adipose tissue is very important. The second thing that you see is that HDL and I try to tell my patients I hesitate to call anything as good or bad. Like HDL is considered to be a good cholesterol, and I don't want to call it that. But HDL levels do go up. But what I found routinely is that LDL levels, the healthier you get, the leaner you get, the more physically active you are, the LDL levels as a rule go up. And in some of my patients, they have gone up into the mid 300s. The high 100s is not uncommon. The mid 250s is not uncommon. And that's where we get into this huge conflict with mainstream medicine. Because I think that if you were to go out and find cardiologists in the United States, you would probably come across three, maybe four, who say, that in the setting of low insulin levels, low triglycerides, high HDL, that the LDL may not be a culprit in causing vascular disease. And that high LDL level is a reflection of what your liver is doing in terms of metab metabolizing fuel, using ketones. And I don't know if you want to get into this, but whether you saw my uh, Denver presentation. Yeah, I did. I would love to get into it because this is something that I've seen repeatedly in my practice too, working with people who are ketogenic or carnivore, LDLs go through the roof. Right. 
And the question that I kept asking was, why are they going up? And I had a conversation on my podcast previously with Dave Feldman, and I found your low-carb Denver presentation where you talked about some reasons that LDL, reasons that LDL might go up on a ketogenic diet. And I think that we can frame this whole conversation around sort of the, the idea that, that we need to make sure that we're clear on, and we can talk about this maybe next, is whether we believe that LDL is directly toxic to the endothelium or not. But understanding why LDL goes up on a ketogenic or carnivore diet is a very interesting point, and I think it'll help people kind of get a sense of why this is happening and maybe allay some of their fears. So um, <clears throat> I'd like to uh, claim that I'm one of the first people in the world to figure out why LDL goes up on a low-carb diet, and, and, and it's, it may be an outlandish claim, but that's very important. It kept bugging me as to why is it happening and why do I not understand it? And this is where I uh, differ a little bit from Dave Feldman. Uh, he does very good work. I admire the man. I think he's a great citizen scientist. So I don't want to detract anything from him. But I do differ in the fact that when you go on a low-carb diet, you are not making a lot of VLDL, which is the precursor of LDL. Because when you go on a low-carb diet, this is what's happening at the basic metabolic level. You're mobilizing fatty acids, and these fatty acids are getting into the mitochondria. These fatty acids are not being converted to triglycerides because the liver has no incentive to make triglycerides at that point. So it's burning the fatty acids, and in the process of burning fatty acids, it creates acetyl-CoA. And one of the major functions of the liver, unlike other tissues, is to make ketones as an alternative fuel for sugar because other tissues don't have the capacity for making ketones. And in the process of making ketones, if you look at the enzymatic machinery that's making ketones, the enzymatic machinery that makes ketones and the enzymatic machinery that makes cholesterol is the same. There are several intermediate products that are can either get directed towards ketones or get directed towards cholesterol. And I have shown that in my uh, Denver presentation, the low-carb Denver presentation. And whether ketones are made in the mitochondria or whether they subsequently move into the cytosol where the enzymes are and that's where cholesterol is made is a little bit unclear at this point. But by design, if somebody is a fat-burning individual who is mobilizing a lot of fatty acids and putting them through the mitochondria to convert to fuel and making a lot of ketones in the process. By design, their LDL cholesterol will go up because the liver is making so much cholesterol at that point that it needs to package it and get it out into the circulation. And in my uh, papers that I have reviewed and put out, there is ample human as well as animal evidence that the production of LDL cholesterol on a low-carb diet goes up directly. It is not like the liver is making VLDL, which is considered to be the father of the LDL, goes into the circulation, drops off the lipids, and that gets converted to LDL, which is the energy delivery model that Dave Feldman is talking about. And I think that is fundamentally flawed. And 
Unfortunately, he got taken to task by Peter Atiyah in, a, in an ambush. And it, it was wrong. It was wrong of Peter Atiyah to do that. And, but whenever scientists headbutt, I learn. Because you should never think about it as a confrontation. You should think about it as a learning experience. I have been wrong so many times because I have gotten up and I said, I believe Dave Feldman's model of energy delivery as to why LDL is going up. I was fundamentally wrong. And that's what made me learn. I think that the ketone body production, the enzymatic machinery that's activated to make ketones is also making cholesterol, and that's why LDL is being directly secreted into the circulation. And we see that if we look at the mevalonate pathway, which is the biochemical pathway involving acetyl-CoA, and people, if they're biochemistry geeks, will know that acetyl-CoA is the precursor molecule for both cholesterol and ketone bodies. Absolutely. And so it makes a lot of sense, and it's in the same biochemical pathway. Incidentally, you know, this is the pathway in which statins act as HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors a little further down the cascade. But in the pathway, both of those are produced from the same precursor molecule, which is acetyl-CoA, which comes from fat. Right. When we do beta-oxidation in the mitochondria, we break down long-chain fatty acids, we get acetyl-CoA, and that is made into ketones. And so it's so interesting when I saw you present that, I thought, oh, okay, this makes sense. Of course, when you are in ketosis, you are LDL will go up. And then I love what you're illustrating here, that there is evidence that LDL can be made independently of VLDL in the liver. There's a paper that you note in the Low Carb Denver presentation that suggests that. And as you're saying, generally what we've all been taught, or those of us who are lipid geeks, is that LDL is a sort of a, a grandchild of VLDL. And that the VLDL is the grandfather, and that IDL is the intermediate, and then goes LDL as the lipoprotein particle changes in density, as, it, as you're saying, as it drops off lipids, triglycerides throughout the circulation. But the fact that we can independently make, via, independently make LDL without making VLDL is sort of further evidence that in these situations, especially these low-carbohydrate situations, this may be what's going on, and this is why LDL is going up. Now, the other piece of this equation that I think is so interesting that you illustrated in that talk was that fasting can increase LDL. Yeah. And, there, and so talk about that a little bit. So fasting is an extreme example of a low-carb diet because when you're fasting, you're going to run out of carbohydrates You know, if you are practicing low-carb within probably about 8 to 12 hours. If you are a carboholic, maybe in a couple of days. So in a seven-day fast in 10 healthy individuals, the LDL went up by a whopping 70%. 70, 70. 70%. But not only that, that paper and a few other papers are illustrative of a kind of homeostasis that you should consider. Because in that paper, they demonstrated and with corroborated with animal studies that as your LDL is going up, your LDL receptors that are picking up LDL from circulation in the liver are going down. Since the liver is making so much cholesterol, it doesn't need to pick up cholesterol from circulation. So there is a down regulation of LDL receptors that pick up cholesterol. The second thing that's happening is that your bile acid production is going up because what I failed to realize is that cholesterol is not a metabolic fuel. It's just a structural component. It makes hormones. 
it's a part of the LDL. It probably is involved along with the LDL in improving muscle function. It's so important for the brain, but it cannot be broken down. It cannot be used as fuel. So the primary mechanism for removing cholesterol is through bile acids. And this paper, the animal study that goes along with it, shows that bile acid production goes up in a situation in which the liver is making a lot of cholesterol. But not only that, the bile acids are involved in what is called an enterohepatic circulation. So to explain that, the bile acids are designed to find, form micelles so that they can absorb fat. And then subsequently, at a certain portion in our small intestines, which is called the ileum, these bile acids are reabsorbed. And it's an active mechanism. The reabsorption of bile acids is a mechanism that can be regulated. And the human body amazingly downregulates the reabsorption of bile acids when the body is making too much cholesterol. And so you would see cholesterol in the feces. And in people who are on a low-carb diet, people who are fasting, the elimination of bile acids, the elimination of bile acids in feces increases. So our body is homeostatically regulating the amount of cholesterol it needs. And that is something that the medical community does not understand. Humans are elegant. We are an incredible organism. <laughs> it's so amazing that we can do that. And so what you're suggesting is that there are these bile acids which are made in the liver, concentrated in the gallbladder, secreted in the gall, the gall fluid, secreted in the bile. And as you said, they form micelles. These are sort of, I'm not sure how to describe this for people without drawing a picture, but micelles are sort of these, uh, these collections of these hydrophilic and hydrophobic uh, molecules, and what they do is they make a hydrophobic molecule soluble in water by lining the, the molecule with sort of hydrophilic and hydrophobic ends of a certain molecule. Hopefully this is making sense to people, but my cells are making fat soluble in the blood, essentially, or at some point they can become soluble in the blood because fat is like a lipid, fat is an oil, and it's not soluble in an aqueous solution. And so the body has all of these fancy solutions for getting fats into an aqueous solution. If people will know that if they try and pour olive oil into water, they won't mix, they just won't mix. And so what we can do is we can make micelles, and one of the things our bodies do is they use bile acids to make micelles. And so as you're suggesting, cholesterol is a steroid molecule. It's a steroid backbone, it's not soluble in water. And so in order to make it soluble in water, if we want to reabsorb it, we need to make micelles out of these bile acids. But what's so elegant here that you're illustrating is that the body can get rid of it if we don't need it. If we make too much, as in the case of a low-carbohydrate diet, a carnivore diet, or a fasting situation, we'll just poop it out, and we'll find more of these bile acids and more cholesterol in the stool. So people get worried about the fact that you're making lots of cholesterol, which can then get packaged into LDL particles, and I'll just... In case people are sort of not following the discussion, there's a lot of uh, terms here that can get used interchangeably. By cholesterol, we're generally meaning the cholesterol molecule, which is a steroid molecule. And LDL is low-density lipoprotein, which is, in a, in a way, it's very similar to a micelle because it's a single-layer molecule that has proteins in the membrane and it encases fat-soluble substances, cholesterol and triglycerides specifically, so that they can travel in the aqueous solution of the blood. 
the trick for people, I think, when they're hearing discussions about this is that they often hear people say cholesterol, quote-unquote, to, to mean LDL and other blood lipids. So we'll just, we'll try, hopefully that clarifies that for people. But when we're saying cholesterol, most of the time what we're talking about is the actual cholesterol molecule. And when we're saying LDL, that's low density lipoprotein. But as you were suggesting, we can regulate the formation of cholesterol with, lip, with uh, fasting, with low carbohydrate diets, and our body can get rid of it with bile acids. So isn't that cool that we can just not get extra LDL happening? Now, I think that people worry about high LDL because we've been told that LDL is bad for us. So maybe we should talk about that because I think that is really the battleground or that is the, that is the point at which many people differ in opinions because I think there's lots of evidence now to understand why LDL goes up in these type of situations. But, and of course, I think we both agree on the answer to this question, but I'll ask it and you can give me your, your, uh, your input. Should we be worried? So now we know when we're in ketosis, when we're fasting, our LDL goes way up. Mine is like 250 milligrams per deciliter if we're talking about an LDL-C and then I've done NMR and my LDL particle number is anywhere between 2,000 and 2,500 nanomole per liter. Do we need to be worried about all that LDL? You said earlier you were sort of a skeptic about LDL. So tell me about your perspective. So you've got all this LDL running around your body now because you're making ketones, you're making acetyl-CoA. What does this mean for us? So let's get into that and let's give a comprehensive answer so that people understand where we are coming from. So the first thing you want to find out is that does LDL have any functions? If you talk to a cardiologist, he'll say, the LDL is so bad that I want to knock it off from the face of earth. I want to reduce it to as low a level as possible. So I want to ask them, hey, do you know why the body is making it? Does it have any functions? And I put that out in many of my YouTube videos, but I want to get into that here. So one of the first functions of LDL is host defense. It is protecting your body from bacteria and viruses. So like, for example, I, this is a beautiful term which is called quorum sensing that I have talked about in my papers. So when a bacteria comes in and infects a certain uh, organ in our body, let's say take the lung, before it gains a foothold, it sends out small molecules into the environment and says, hey, can I, is this a suitable environment where I can multiply and proliferate? And that protein molecule that is going out is neutralized by the LDL particle. So the LDL particle neutralizes the protein, prevents an infection. There are plenty of information that LDL is, is quite involved in host defense for bacteria and viruses. So that's one of the first functions of the LDL. The second function of the LDL is to supply raw material of cholesterol to the ovaries, to the adrenal glands, because unfortunately, many cells can make cholesterol. But unfortunately, our gonads and our adrenal gland depend upon an external supply of cholesterol. Now, there could be a little bit of controversy whether it's the HDL or the LDL that's supplying cholesterol to the gonads. But I'm convinced looking at literature that it's the LDL that is doing that. 
Now, I have also shown in some of the work uh, of others in my presentations that cell repair. Now, when you talk about cells, cells are getting injured all the time. And injury to the cell involves injury to the membrane. The membrane is a phospholipid bilayer with cholesterol that is included in that. And the cholesterol has to come from some place. And our cells cannot make the amount of cholesterol that is needed for cell repair on their own. And there are beautiful illustrations of paper in which the LDL is taken up by the cell. The cholesterol is reused to repair the cell membrane. So right off the bat, I have given you three functions, but let's keep going more. What about our mitochondria? Our mitochondria are driven by coenzyme uh, uh, CoQ10. And CoQ10 is made in the same pathway through which cholesterol is made. In fact, when you take HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors, which is statins, you're reducing CoQ10. That's perhaps one of the primary mechanisms through which they create a myopathy. CoQ10 is packaged in the same LDL molecule. And CoQ10 is needed by the mitochondria to run the electron transport chain. Now, it's a big term, but simplistically, electron transport chain is just a mechanism of burning fuel and converting it into useful energy. Like if you and I are cycling, we are looking at watts. If you're burning fuel, you're just looking at ATP production, if that is a good analogy for people. The other functions of LDL is to carry fat-soluble vitamins, antioxidants. If you look at the work of uh, Shaban Huggins, she talks about a variant of LDL, which is LP little a, which is so closely involved in processing oxidative injury. I mean, she seems to think that oxidative injury is happening and LP little a is around to mop up the oxidative injury. It's a good player, it's not a bad player. So by no means have I been comprehensive. I can probably figure out a few other functions. But LDL is preserved over generations, evolutionary preserved, right from an insect up to humans. And it is wrong for us to think that the only reason the LDL is made is to create plaques in the blood vessels of our heart. In fact, I try myself best not to talk about the plaque as an atherosclerotic plaque, because atherosclerosis implies that it is LDL and fat and cholesterol that is causing the plaque. It might actually be a good player trying to go there and repair the injury rather than be a bad player, like we have use these analogies so many times before, at the scene of the fire, they are firefighters. They are not causing the fire, they are putting down the fire. And I am a physician and I'm capable of analyzing literature very good. And when I look at the literature, I cannot be convinced, based on the biochemistry that is being pointed out, that the LDL is actually there to cause endothelial injury and that it is not used as a repair mechanism. Now, when LDL does get oxidized, it is definitely a marker of vascular injury. 
and whether the oxidized ldl is a bad player or no i am not sure but the very things that the whole community the low carb community the fasting community is trying to do is to prevent oxidative injury they're trying to reduce inflammation so i am convinced that we should not think about ldl as a unidimensional measure that it has several beneficial functions and that we should study it further i couldn't agree more i think this is such a great characterization and when we begin to think about ldl and all of the good things that it's doing i think it will begin to be painted in a more accurate light we as you suggest in the cardiology community when i was working in that community we imagined ldl as a supervillain this is like you know i'm trying to think of a supervillain from one of these movies you know like this is basically the joker or the penguin from batman like this is the this is thanos from avengers like ldl is a supervillain when in fact it has incredibly important roles in immune function as you're suggesting quorum sensing and preventing bacteria from sending signals out to other bacteria it has roles in delivering fat soluble vitamins and nutrients it delivers coenzyme q10 it has so many incredible roles cellular membrane components how can we malign this molecule so much we should be celebrating this molecule it's an incredibly valuable thing to have in our bodies the other piece of this equation that's so interesting to me that you suggest is the whole i love that you said this because i hadn't thought about it until you mentioned it the whole idea that we imagine that ldl is the creator of atherosclerosis we are saying atherosclerosis in which we are in a way that we are suggesting we are implying that ldl is the progenitor that ldl is the cause in some way when in fact all we know is that we find ldl in these plaques but we don't know if it got there as a repair tool as you're suggesting or if it's actually there causing injury and i would agree with you in literature that i've seen most of it would suggest in fact all of it would suggest uh, aside from epidemiology that the first part of an atherosclerotic plaque is an injury in the wall of the artery that it's either an intimal uh, proliferation and by intima i mean one of the layers of the arterial wall the arteries are made of multiple layers if we are inside of the artery the first layer that we will see as we move toward the outside of the artery is the endothelium below that is the intima below that is the media and that's followed by the adventitia <clears throat> and there's evidence that the first part of an atherosclerotic plaque or the precursor lesion is actually intimal hyperplasia right or intimal injury and there's not even really ldl there it's just there's something that's injuring the wall of the vessel and i think this is so interesting because <clears throat> it really begs the question what if ldl is just arriving there as a repair molecule it's doing repairs everywhere else in the body what if it's just arriving there as a repair molecule and you illustrate it beautifully with the idea of firemen or policemen just because ldl is at the scene of the crime doesn't mean it committed the crime maybe it's there just to repair things and there are so many of these great thought experiments that have helped me sort of understand this are you familiar with Malcolm Kendrick and his work? Oh yes, he's uh, he's a hero to me. So I heard him say on a podcast, if LDL is directly toxic to the endothelium, why don't we get plaques in veins? Because there's the same amount of LDL in all of our circulation. There's the same amount of LDL circulating in an artery as there is in a vein. And so if LDL itself is enough to initiate a plaque, 
and I have 2,500 nanomole per liter of LDL particles moving around, well, why don't I get atherosclerotic plaque or why don't I get plaque in a vein? Why don't we get plaque in veins in anyone that we ever see? We never get plaque in veins unless we put them under high pressure situations. As you know, as a cardiologist in bypass surgery, we can take veins and we can put them into the heart and we can use them as surrogate arteries. And in that case, they get atherosclerosis or they get plaque formation very quickly when we put them under higher pressure. But we only see plaque in vessels, arteries specifically, that have higher pressure and higher tension. And we often see the atherosclerotic plaques happening at bifurcations, at regions of high turbulence, which is so consistent for me with the idea that there's an arterial injury there that must start the process. Would you agree? I couldn't agree more because I think it's the injury that starts the process. High blood pressure, sheer stress that's found in the arterial circulation are factors that are causing injury, perhaps to the endothelium, perhaps at points of sheer stress, like where the blood vessel is dividing into two uh, branches. And that is the process that starts an injury and there are repair mechanisms the body uses. And just like you and I agree that LDL and the whole lipoprotein system, not just the LDL, but the HDL may also be a part of this repair process. And it is very simplistic for us to think that reducing LDL is going to stop the proliferation of plaques. See, I tried to avoid calling it atherosclerosis. So you got to give me credit for that. I'm trying to follow you, but I'm still stumbling. <laughs> so like, for example, I, I want to take one study. And this is the Fourier trial. The Fourier trial was done in 28,000 patients. 28,000 patients. So 14,000 of these patients were given a statin and a new drug, which is called a PCSK9 inhibitor. So the way PCSK9 inhibitor works is that it goes and tells the liver, mop up all the LDL, because the LDL receptor that is there on the liver is prevented from being degraded. So the LDL receptor overexpression in the liver mops up all the LDL cholesterol or the LDL lipoprotein from the circulation. So in 14,000 patients, the LDL levels were reduced to less than 50 milligrams per deciliter. Actually, I think if I remember correctly, the level was 30, 30. Now compare that to about 90 to 100 in the control group. 14,000 patients with an LDL cholesterol of 30 milligrams per deciliter compared to a group, which is a control group, followed for about two to two and a half years. You would expect that if LDL was the culprit, you would abolish coronary artery disease and cardiovascular death from the face of earth in this population. But what happened was that there was no reduction in death. In fact, the number of deaths in the treatment group that had low LDL was a little high there was a slight reduction in the rate of myocardial infarction and the benefit was so ridiculous that you would have to treat 200 patients for two years to reduce one myocardial infarction. Now, I should also point out that I'm extremely dejected by clinical trials 
because they are done predominantly by the pharmaceutical industry. These clinical trials are done in 25 countries at 400 centers. The pharmaceutical industry funds these trials. They gather all the data. They hire experts to analyze this data. So the degree of bias in excluding somebody, like let's say I was on a PCSK9 inhibitor and I had an event, but I am also the one who is running the trial and I would like to somehow find reasons to exclude that patient from being included in the endpoint analysis. And you don't need to do too many exclusions, just a few would tip the favor in favor of the drug. And another thing that the industry is doing, which physicians are culpable and liable, is that they are using what is called a relative risk reduction. David Diamond points it out beautifully, which is that when you have a benefit of about a half a percent in reduction of myocardial infarction, in 28,000 patients, that's the absolute reduction. I think it's ridiculous. In other words, if you say, I want to use 28,000 patients, treat them with an intervention, and at the end of three years or five years, show you a half a percent reduction in myocardial infarction, I'd say that's a ridiculous question that you're asking, and it's a study that's not worth doing. But what the medical profession has taken is that taken that number and use the analogy that Malcolm Kendrick does. And, and let's use that. Because he says, like, let's say I am a lottery expert and the chances of you winning the lottery is one in 10 million. And I change that and say, hey, Paul, I can double your chances of winning the lottery. That's a 100% increase. And you would say, yeah, here, I'll give you 50 bucks, although the lottery ticket is only 10 bucks. On the other hand, the increase of 100% is actually going from one in 10 million to two in 10 million. Just buy two tickets, you will save money. So the one to two is being translated in clinical trials as a 100% improvement and that's the relative risk reduction. And really, I would like, you know, and again, I want to take a leaf out of Ken Berry's book because he talks about the lies the physicians are telling their patients. And this is a blatant lie. I think physicians have relinquished their responsibility for patient care. They have abdicated it yeah, and given it to the pharmaceutical industry. They have given it to their associations they really are not analyzing clinical data the way we should. And functional medicine physicians like you who are saying, hey, let's bring this information to the public and say, look, the benefit of lifestyle, nutrition, fasting, exercise is so much more powerful than medicines, especially for the treatment of chronic disease. And I don't know if you would agree with that. Of course, I would agree with that. Yeah. So uh, I find myself that physicians are doing the wrong thing. And 
I, like I told in, in the uh, Denver presentation, what should happen is that this is a grassroots effort. When you teach people about this information, the grassroots information gets, and it's going to change medicine from grounds up. Chronic disease prevention is going to be done by people like you, not by mainstream medicine. I think that if unless mainstream medicine catches up and says, hey, we need to change, if they don't change, then the regular physician is going to get buggy whipped because there's going to be no longer a role for them. Medical information is now available to everyone. Thanks to the presence of social media, YouTube, podcasts, internet. And physicians better take a heed to this. Because if they don't, then they are going to be relics. I love that you just said buggy whipped. That's the best thing. <laughs> That's my favorite part of this so far. In the podcast I did with Tommy Wood, he said tassiography. So every podcast, I'm collecting my favorite guest's uh, sort of words. So any bug, buggy whip, but yes. But I agree with you completely. I hope people will send this to their physicians. And I know that people are already doing that because our patients, our clients, the people that are listening to this, thousands of people are going to listen to this podcast, thousands, tens of thousands. And when they go to their physicians, they haven't been to medical school. And their physician's going to say, hey, you need to do this. And they'll say, you know what? I don't fully understand this, but I heard this podcast. You should listen to this. And I think you're right. I think that what's going to happen is there's going to be this tectonic shift and physicians are going to realize very quickly that they're going to become relics unless they start to open their minds and think about these things critically. So I love this sentiment and I hope that it does happen this way. And I hope there's a tsunami of change in the way that we're thinking about these things. And I love that you're talking about the statin trials because this idea of the fact that Pharmaceutical companies will almost always report relative risk reduction and downplay absolute risk reduction with regard to statin efficacy is very important for people to understand. And as you're suggesting, they can look very different in terms of the amount of effect. And that's what's been done over and over. When I was a PA in cardiology, I have, a, I have an, an admission to make. I actually worked as a rep for Lipitor for a little bit. I gave presentations many years ago about Lipitor, and I would talk about these things. And... It was so long ago in my career, it was early on, I thought I was doing the right thing. And in retrospect, I, I was supporting a drug that I don't believe in anymore. I was supporting a whole class of drugs, the statin class of drugs that I don't believe in anymore. But yes, the pharmaceutical companies will do some fancy math. And as you're suggesting, they'll look at what's called relative risk reduction. But when we actually look at absolute risk reduction with statins and cardiovascular outcomes in these huge trials, they are very, very, very small. The Fourier trial is a great example. As you're saying, we basically wiped Thanos off the earth. We completely destroyed the quote-unquote bad guy. We killed him, right? This is the Avengers they won. There's like no LDL in the whole circulation. And they got 0.5, or what was the actual number in Fourier, in the Fourier trial? It's very small. It was less than 1% improvement in myocardial infarction and no improvement in cardiovascular or all-cause mortality. You said that all-cause mortality was actually worse in the, treat, in, in the treatment group. In the yes. treatment arm. Yes. And this is something that I've heard you and both you and Dave highlight, and I think it's another thing to suggest to people as a nuance here. Are we looking at cardiovascular endpoints or are we looking at all-cause mortality endpoints? I would argue that they're both valid, but all-cause mortality almost never gets reported in any of these studies because what we see 
is that all-cause mortality is never affected by LDL lowering. Right. And in some of the work that Dave has done with the NHANES data, we actually see all-cause mortality go down in people as they have a higher LDL. That's what we see basically across the board if you look at epidemiology studies. It's a little bit complicated because we're not doing interventional trials and whatnot. But if we are considering all-cause mortality and LDL levels, the general trend is that the higher your LDL, the lower your all-cause mortality. And if we look at epidemiology a little more specifically and we look in elderly populations, universally across the world, in every population that's been studied, the higher the LDL means a better outcome. Lower mortality in elderly populations, the higher your LDL because of all the things that you enumerated earlier. Functioning in vitamin and min vitamin delivery, fat-soluble vitamins, functioning in immune system roles, functioning delivering coenzyme Q10. So the idea that LDL is a bad thing and that we should be knocking it down is just ludicrous in my opinion. And I think there's really no evidence to support the idea that LDL is directly toxic to the endothelium in any way. So I think that we should uh, give the listeners two pearls. One is what you just pointed out, that the degree of information that is there supporting the idea that high LDL after age 50 actually is a marker of better health. So we can illustrate a few studies so that you know people get a little bit of an idea as to where we are coming from. And then the second part, and if I forget, you should remind me about that, is the evidence from statin trials that it is conflicting, that there is no dose response. By dose response, I mean that if you lower LDL to a small degree, you should get a little benefit, but if you lower it to a large degree, you should get a bigger benefit. There should be consistency across the trials then we should also point out about the degree of pharmaceutical bias. But let's just get into the first point. So like you said, recent uh, work from Dave in the NHANES information that nanogenarians, people who lived into the hundreds, had a much higher LDL level, which does make no sense as to the LDL being the culprit. I have pointed out in some of my presentation about the Leiden 85 plus trial, done in Netherlands, in which people 85 and older were taken and divided into cholesterol subgroups. High cholesterol was 250 to 300, middle cholesterol was 200 to 250, and low cholesterol less than 200. And uniformly, the group that lived longer, the group that had lower cancer mortality, lower all-cause mortality, lower rates of pneumonias, because as you get older, you tend to die of infections. So the group that had the lowest mortality was the highest cholesterol group. Now, if you look at memory and functioning, cognitive performance, there is the Lothian birth cohort in patients over 70 years of age. And uniformly in that, the high cholesterol group, similarly divided, 200 to 250 being the high, uh, sorry, 250 to 300 being the high, 200 to 250 being the middle, and less than 200 being the low. The highest cholesterol group had better cognitive performance, better math skills, better memory skills. In addition to that, in that trial, 
when patients were put on statin drugs and compared to the non-statin users, there was a uniform reduction in IQ, in memory, and in cognitive performance. So that's the Lothian birth cohort. I cannot but talk about the work of Malcolm Kendrick, Uf Ravnuskov, and David Diamond, in which they have taken 60,000 patients and compared LDL to all-cause mortality and found that the higher the LDL, lower the all-cause mortality. Now, with your permission, in the last segment of the podcast, let's switch to the statin trials, if that's okay. Yeah, for sure. So I want to give two resources to people, or several resources. One of them is a book by a Frenchman, a cardiologist by the name of Michel Logirel. I can link to it in the show notes for people. It's a beautiful book because it's taken statin trials and analyzed them and shown how flawed they are. And I have used some of the information from that book, some of the information from Malcolm Kendrick, and I have a YouTube talk, several YouTube talks, but the one in particular is called Lipid Seminars at Clear Lake. And if you can put a link to that, it basically fundamentally analyzes the lipid trials from the time that they started. So the lipid trial people are are quite fond of quoting, the people who are statin uh, supporters, is the 4S trial done in 1994. It was predominantly done by Merck. Merck analyzed all the data. They had in-house statisticians. They followed patients for over five years, for six years, I think, 4,444 patients. This was a secondary prevention trial, which means that patients already had an event. They had either a heart attack or bypass surgery or some other evidence of vascular disease. And the degree of benefit in terms of reduction in mortality, and this is the best trial. You cannot come across another statin trial that shows better benefit. And the best trial shows that if you treated 100 patients with a statin drug, that you would find a reduction in mortality of 0.6% per year. That's a ridiculously small amount, especially when you take into the fact that this was so biased. And then many people have analyzed information from this, which says that if you took the subgroup, that had low triglycerides and normal HDL levels, there was no benefit. Now, as these trials came about, unfortunately or fortunately, the forest trial data could not be replicated. There were several Lipitor trials in which the degree of LDL reduction was much more dramatic than that was there in the forest trial. And you would think that since the degree of benefit is that much, that you should get a graded improvement in reduction of all-cause mortality. In other words, you should get a graded benefit. Not so. In fact, the benefit in all subsequent trials has been less and less. Let's talk about another important thing, is that before 2006, before the era of the enhanced trial, and we should get into the enhanced in a second, 
before the era of the enhanced trial, a drug company could do a hundred trials, clinical trials, and only show the ones that showed benefit of their drug. They did not have to talk about any of the other 99 trials that showed either a damage or, or, or lack of benefit or harm and just focus on the one that showed benefit. In 2006, the drug companies were doing an enhanced trial, which was a trial of simvastatin, which is the same drug used in the forest trial, and Zetia, which is an agent that reduces the absorption of cholesterol from the gut. So when you use these two, there is a synergistic effect in reducing LDL cholesterol. It, it, it reduces it a lot more. And they were comparing it to a group that had only simvastatin. Now, since we don't have the paper in front of us, um, we have to do some generalizations. And the generalization was that the early uh, information from the trial showed a dramatic reduction in plaque formation measured through an ultrasound in the coronary arteries of patients. But the end point of the trial was reduction the carotids. in carotid intimal thickness and it was supposed to be reported in 2006, did not get reported then, 2007. And finally, people started asking, hey, you had shown all this great preliminary information about this being a wonder drug. What happened? Why are you not presenting the data? And the reason the data was not being presented was because it was unfavorable for the group that was getting the simvastatin with the Zetia, reducing the LDL cholesterol more because there was either a little higher thickness or as the data was fudged that there was no difference. And FDA had to force Merck, which was the maker of simvastatin, to release that data. And that's how that data came about. And that's when the government said that if you're going to do a clinical trial, you're going to have to present that information at least on the internet, and you have to register that trial. Now, since 2008, the clinical trials that have been done to show a benefit of LDL reduction have been very muted. The degree of benefit is even smaller, 0.3% in large number of patients. So really the robustness of statin data is not very good, but statins unfortunately make $40 billion worldwide. And the pharmaceutical company speaks because all you have to do is to go to the American Heart Association or to American College of Cardiology and see the level of sponsorship, the level of presence of these drug companies at these major meetings in which how much money they are pouring out. I would rather think that it is more honorable for cardiologists to meet in the basement of YMCA, spend less money, but be clinically and uh, be more dedicated to their patients. Because that's what we are as physicians. We are supposed to be for our patients. We are not supposed to be for the drug industry. And all of medicine has been hijacked by the drug industry. And that's why the grassroots effort that you are doing, that I'm trying to do, is very important. 
You bring up so many great points there. I'll try and just comment on a couple of them. That enhanced trial, I was a PA when that came out, and I remember thinking, what the heck? It got worse. The carotid intimal thickness got worse when they added Zetia to simvastatin. So clearly, LDL reduction is not what's going on. And the other thing that was highlighted to me at that time, and we haven't even had time to talk about this, maybe we can just say a word about it, is that we've been talking about the statin drugs with these trials. The data in terms of cardiac outcomes, I believe, is even less impressive when we're looking at drugs that lower LDL that are not in the statin class. Because as people will know, there are many drugs that lower LDL that are not statins, that are not HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors. There's cholestyramine, there's Zetia, there's many drugs that lower LDL that are not statins. And what, what do we see with those drugs, just briefly, what do we see with those drugs in terms of cardiac outcomes that are not statins? So when we talk about those drugs, we are going back to the 1970s and 80s before uh, the statins uh, came on board. And yes, there was not as robust a reduction in LDL, but and I have a theory about that. Uh, and the Lipid Research Clinic trial that used the uh, bilacid binding resins was one of the major ones. And the phenofibrate trial was another major one. And they showed no benefit. They showed a reduction in LDL cholesterol, perhaps not to 30 to 50%, probably in the range of about 15%. And there was no reduction. Enormous amounts of money was being spent. And people were really getting dejected and saying that, hey, cholesterol may not be the answer here in heart disease until the statins came about. And I think that as physicians, we don't analyze data the right way. We like to see something on paper that is objective and say, hey, I'm making a difference. So when a physician gives a statin drug, he sees on blood markers that the LDL cholesterol will go down by 30 to 50%. He looks at that number and he's happy. The patient is happy that I'm doing something good because there is this paper that says my cholesterol went down And since the lipid heart hypothesis is ingrained into everybody, they think that they're doing something good. Sort of a confirmation bias. It's just the wrong paradigm. And that's what we need to change. If you're looking at non-clinical information and making assessments of clinical information, you're always going to be wrong. The other thing that I think is striking about statins, because I think that perhaps from this episode, the thing that people will take away more than anything is a, is a perspective on whether or not they should take statins or whether they should consider taking statins. The thing that I think we should also comment on briefly is the degree to which the side effects are reported. If you look at these trials, they will suggest very low side effects. And my impression is they are grossly underreported clinically. I only worked for four years as a cardiology PA, but in my experience, a lot of patients, a lot of patients got statin side effects. In fact, anecdotally, I would say more patients got side effects than not got side effects when they got put on statins. What is your sense of that? And how is it possible that the amounts of side effects reported in these trials is so low when we observe clinically, something that may be very different. 
I, I couldn't agree more. There are a few points out there. But let's take a run-in phase for trials. You know, this is very important. When a, when a company does a clinical trial, they have what is called a run-in phase. And the run-in phase means that they take individuals, give them the drug, and see if they can tolerate the drug. And if they cannot tolerate the drug, they're removed from the clinical trial. So as right from the get-go, you're reducing the side effects because you're removing patients who have had a side effect. The second thing is that the way clinical trials are designed, the reporting is for the events you are looking for. If you're not looking for cognitive impairment, if you're not looking for reduction in exercise time, if you're not looking for symptoms of myopathy, you're not going to find them. And so the clinical trials have no incentive to look at the side effects because they're really designed to sell a drug. It's the pharmaceutical company that's doing it. I think that clinical research should be taken over by the NIH and the NIH should not be beholden to any pharmaceutical company because that's the only way we are going to improve our healthcare. Now, let's talk about something called informed consent because when I do something for patients, I'm supposed to do informed consent. And I think that when I put a patient on a statin, they're going to take these drugs for 30 to 40 years, four decades. And before I give them that drug, I think it is imperative for me, more so than when I put a stent in somebody, because when I'm putting a stent in somebody, it's going to make a change. But the stent is a few minutes uh, of procedure time. It's going to improve their outcome in some ways, maybe not in other ways. So I do an informed consent in that process. But an intervention that's going to last for 40 years should require an even better informed consent. Wouldn't you agree? I couldn't agree more. So I should talk with my patients and say, hey, the statin drugs can have myopathy. They can have erectile dysfunction. They can have memory issues. I want you to be aware of this before you take this drug. I want you to be aware about the degree of benefit. I want you to be knowledgeable about what relative risk reduction is and absolute risk reduction is. I want you to be knowledgeable that 100% of the cardiologists want to get your LDL down that I am biased, but I don't want your my bias to sway your decision. I want you to make an independent decision. I would never take somebody off a statin myself. I would not tell them that. I would give them informed consent. And then I would let them make a decision of what they want based on their values and preferences and based on them objectively analyzing, am I getting myopathy? Am I getting depression? Am I getting sexual dysfunction from this? Am I getting more sedentary? Because unless you give patients the tools to analyze what's happening to them, they're not going to be thinking, they're always going to be thinking that their doctor is right. There's a lot of paternalism in medicine. Yes. A lot of patients come to me and say, in a panic, my doctor wants me to go on a statin. And I think, you are the boss. You have agency. You don't have to go on a statin, but I think that as 
Westerners, we want to please our physicians in some way and people feel so much pressure. So if people are listening to this and they have not had that degree of informed consent from their physician regarding statins, I would go back to their physician and ask them, can you tell me about the side effects? What am I going to experience with this? How many people do, does the physician that's treating you, I'm talking to the listeners now, how many people does the physician that's treating you see have side effects from these medications? Because I think both of our experiences is that a lot of people get side effects from statins, and this is a big deal. And people end up on them for their whole lives. So people need to know what they're getting into with these drugs and understand that it's, a, it's almost a lifelong commitment and it's going to change your quality of life for something that might not actually really be the right intervention. I want to leave with a small pearl. And I don't know if the podcast is getting too long and you can probably edit it later. But in oh, this my, is gold. This whole thing is going to go on. Don't worry. Yeah. I'm not going to edit yeah. any of this out, man. Uh, in my clinical experience, the incidence of myopathy is at least 30%, if not more. 30%? If not more. Th that's what I've heard. Yeah. That's been my experience too. Now, um, I also want to point out that statins are giving, being given on a routine basis to patients who are immobile, who are in wheelchairs, who are demented. And I think that is fundamentally flawed because there is no way to assess whether it is making their mobility worse, whether it's making their dementia worse. I want to leave with another little pearl. There is uh, information that the statin manufacturers, one of the person who you know, promotes statins, actually also promotes a kit to analyze myopathy in patients who are on statins. But when that same clinician is talking about clinical data of the benefits of statin, he says that myopathy is, less, is present in less than 5%. But the same kit that he's selling talks about myopathy being as common as 40 to 50%. So, I think that informed consent is not done by physicians with regards to statins. In fact, if I were taking statins and I went to my physician and I said, hey, I'm having memory issues, he would not even put two and two together. He would just basically dismiss it and say, hey, I don't know what that is from. It's nothing. So the reporting of side effects by physicians on statin drugs is minimal because they are dismissive of that information. Most clinical visits between a physician and a patient last less than five minutes. Unless you say, I truly want to sit down and listen to my patient. Unless you say, I'm not gonna look at the EMR on the screen and I'm gonna pay attention to you and hear you out you're not going to be aware that what that patient is saying. You're going to be dismissive. So there is tremendous underreporting and there is tremendous uh, side effects that are being overlooked by the physician community because we are just not listening to our patients. I think that so many patients are just craving being heard and they just want to be heard. And that's where I think functional medicine comes in. 
it's a space where people can take more time and really hear patients. I hope that the medical model will move in that way, in that manner in the future. Right now with the insurance-based medical model, it's so hard for physicians to do that. And I'm sure you've experienced that yourself. I appreciate you coming on so much, my friend. I'll just say a few words to summarize for people because we've covered so much. But at this point in the podcast, I just want to recapitulate that we talked about LDL. We talked about the positive functions of LDL, the fact that it has a real role. We talked about the idea that there's really not solid data that LDL is directly toxic to the endothelium or initiates plaque formation. And in fact, probably what's going on is that arterial injury is the first the first step in plaque formation and that LDL may actually be arriving as someone that's helpful. So we probably shouldn't be worried about high LDL in the setting of ketogenic or carnivore diets that have insulin sensitivity. We'll have to have you back on because we didn't really talk about some of the other nuances I wanted to get to. We mentioned a little bit about LP little a, which is a whole other episode by itself. We mentioned a little bit about oxidized LDL, which is a whole other episode by itself. The only thing I'll say about oxidized LDL for people is that in my opinion, the tests we have now for oxidized LDL are flawed. And because they are uh, antibody-based assays, they really just track with LDL particle numbers. So I actually don't recommend people do oxidized LDL testing right now. I think it's something we need to follow in the future, but it's only at the research level that it's valuable. And what I see in my patients is that oxidized LDL tracks directly with LDL particle number. And the ratio that I see is 0.04. And if someone is different than 0.04, you may have a problem. But if I have an LDL particle number of 2,500 nanomole per liter, I can predict someone's oxidized LDL with a great degree of accuracy with a ratio of 0.04. And to me, this is a really great indication. We'll go into LDL particle number and oxidized LDL in a future episode. The other thing I'll just mention about LDL for people <clears throat> or the process of plaque formation is that we know that plaque formation occurs in all animals in the world, in elephants, in giraffes, in vegetarian animals it occurs, in tigers. I shouldn't say all animals, I'm not a duologist, but there are many animals that we've observed plaque formation in. And I think this is such a great testament to the fact that this isn't necessarily due, plaque formation is not necessarily due to a processed diet. I think it could contribute to it for sure but it's probably just arterial repair. All of these organisms, all of these animals, probably get some damage to their endothelium and they have to repair it. We see plaque formation in elephants, right? So let's think about this from a different perspective. Elephants don't necessarily die of heart attacks, but they do get plaque formation and these are vegetarian animals. So the idea that meat or any of these things is the problem are completely false. And I'll remind people of the idea that veins don't get atherosclerosis. So the work of Malcolm Kendrick is highly... Uh, highly actionable and highly revealing. And then we spent a lot of time really digging into the statins. And hopefully this podcast will get passed between people who are thinking about taking statins, who have questions about this. I know that I have a cousin who had a coronary artery calcium score and he had a positive score. And his coronary artery calcium was in the left main. And he thought, oh man, what do I do? His physician recommended him taking a statin. And I said, well, let's pause and think about that. But I'm sure a lot of people are in that position over the course of this weekend, I've had multiple people come up to me and say, hey, I have a positive calcium score, and I'll do a whole episode about calcium scores, guys. But I think that you know, we were able to talk about a lot of these statin trials and why statins are probably not the answer, and that really statins have high degrees of side effects for people. So hopefully this has helped them get a sense of the lay of the land with regard to statins. 
I'll ask you for your take-home messages in a moment, but my take-home messages from this would be don't fear a high LDL in the setting of a healthy lifestyle and a low-carbohydrate diet. Statins are not worth it. And understand the total perspective on your health. Understand your inflammatory markers. Understand your insulin sensitivity. And hopefully this podcast will help contribute to the overall understanding of lipids, which I believe are really the sharp end of the spear when it comes to ketogenic and carnivore diets. So you mentioned your pearls. What, what's, what's, what are your take-homes, my friend? So as far as take-home is that, of course, I cannot give individual medical advice. But just like you pointed out, that if you are doing the lifestyle changes that all of us talk about, which is a low-carb diet, predominantly animal-based, regular periods of fasting and movement or exercise, by design, your lipoprotein profile is going to change. You're going to have a lower triglycerides, high HDL, low insulin levels, low inflammation markers. The only conflict with mainstream medicine here is a high LDL level. And in this setting, should you treat a high LDL level or no is the major question of our time. Now, I happen to be biased, and I think that the answer to that is a resounding no. I would like to base that answer on the basis of following calcium scores, on following patients clinically. For example, if you have a calcium score of zero, there is no clinical benefit of stating, taking statins for 10 years. So people would, can find some comfort in that. People with high LDL can follow their calcium scores three to five years and see if it is changing in such a way that could be potentially detrimental. So my take-home message is that please listen to your body. Do the lifestyle changes because the drugs don't have as much impact as lifestyle does. And as far as taking statins for high LDL, be tuned into your body to analyze myopathy, memory issues, erectile dysfunction, and many others that we have discussed, rather than just blindly accept the medical profession's dogma that you should take it. My friend, you're a treasure. I'm so grateful. Uh, I cannot be happier that I got a chance to talk to you, and uh, this is amazing, and I wish you all the luck with what you're doing. You're creating new frontiers and new ground, and I wish that I was your age when I got enlightened, uh, I'm much older, so I'm a little envious of what you're doing. You are invaluable to this community. So where can people find you? What are you excited about that's coming up? I know you've got Low Carb Houston coming up that we want to excitedly tell people about. Where can people find your work? Uh, so uh, uh, I am. I have a small presence on YouTube, uh, uh, Nadir Ali MD. You can find my uh, channel out there. I'll link to it. And... Uh, you uh, would like to plug in Low Carb Houston. Low Car Houston is one of the largest cities in uh, the country. It's also one of the fattest cities in the country. Uh, a conference that promotes low-carb lifestyle, uh, fasting information, and talks about the benefits of exercise is probably more relevant to that city than any others. So if you go to lowcarbhouston.com, we will have 20 speakers from all over the world who will give you pearls that you cannot find any, anywhere else. So 
all Texans, all Houstonians, and anybody from any part of the U.S. or for the or from the rest of the world, please come to Low Carb Houston if you can. When is it? So it's uh, October twenty fourth to twenty sixth, and uh, Houston at that time is a beautiful city. The temperatures are sort of very moderate. It's very sunny. Last time when we did it last year, there was two days of bright sunshine with an average temperature between 68 and 72 degrees. I'm sure that'll get a lot of people there. That sounds amazing. And I know you'll be speaking so people can come and meet you and hear your talks there. And there'll be tons of other great people. So check out Low Carb Houston. Where are you on Instagram and Twitter? So Twitter, I am as, as Eat Mostly Fat Ali. Eat Mostly Fat Ali. Um, since I belong to an older generation, I'm not on Instagram. I have a web page that is sort of rudimentary, which is eatmostlyfat.com. And really, like I was talking to Paul earlier, I'm at a little bit of a crossroads myself. Uh, I am a very good fl- clinician. I'm a very good interventional cardiologist. And spending time taking care of patients and being in the cardiac cath lab is an all-consuming job. And I'm wondering whether my calling is to give that up and do more of what Paul is doing out here and spend more time on the internet, uh, get my web page going, get my YouTube channel going, and spread all the good information that Paul is trying to do. I think whatever you do, you'll be an asset to the community. I hope that you'll do more of that, but we can talk about that offline a little bit. So again, my friend, thank you for coming on. Thank you for listening, guys. We need to pause. We'll have to have you back on. We'll do another episode in the future. I actually need to go to KetoCon and give a talk now. So I appreciate all of you guys listening. And as always, please do your best. I know you guys are awesome at this. Stay radical. That was rad. I seriously got done talking with Nadir Ali and I thought, wow, we just made something really cool. I hope that is helpful for all of you who are facing your physicians, family with high LDLs or no view with high LDLs and questioning whether or not you should take a statin. In my opinion, which is not professional advice, you know that, don't even think it is. Don't do that. I would not take a statin. I don't think they're worthwhile. I don't think it's the right mechanism. I don't think LDL is directly toxic to the endothelium at all. I think we are missing the boat here. I think we are mistaking the fact that in diabetes and other insulin-resistant states, the LDL rises, but this does not mean that LDL is the culprit. There are certain situations in which an elevated LDL has been associated with increased incidence of coronary disease, but this is likely due to the underlying factors which are raising the LDL and not the LDL itself, in my humble opinion. Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Check out my newsletter, except it's now called The Fundamental Health Insider, because you want to be an insider. You want to know what's going on. In it, I will give you my promo codes. I've listed them here before. Saladino MD from Ancestral Supplements to get 10% off. www.juvejovv.com front slash Paul to get a Juve light. And let me know how I'm doing, you guys. I appreciate you all. I love doing this podcast. I'm going to try and bring you the best guests I can and continue to deliver kick-ass information. Stay radical. Kick butt. See you soon. 